Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to Let's Talk About It with Jackie and Megan. Today we interviewed Dr. Gavin Ortland. Gavin is a husband, father, pastor, and writer. He serves as senior pastor of First Baptist Church of OI in California. Gavin has a PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary and an MDiv from Covenant Theological Seminary. He's the author of several books and blogs regularly about theology and Christian living. Gavin also creates content on his YouTube channel, Truth Unites, where he posts a variety of videos on apologetics and theology. In this episode, we talked to Gavin about complexities in infant baptism and believer's baptism and just about his own journey from the Presbyterian Church to the Baptist denomination that he now pastors in. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Dr. Ortland. Hey guys, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good. For our audience, would you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm a pastor in Ojai, California, which is about 80 miles northwest of LA. And I'm married and my wife and I have four kids, ages eight to one. So uh, we're in a, one of those busy seasons of parenthood. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm interested in theology. I'm doing a lot of YouTube stuff right now, especially engaging on kind of Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox type issues and also um, apologetics. So um, yeah, that's a little overview. Awesome. And from my understanding, so I originally, it was funny because your last name sounded super familiar and it's because I knew of your father, Ray Ortland. Hmm. Um, so you, if it's, I'm understanding correctly, you were originally Presbyterian, but now you're obviously the pastor of a Baptist church. So what were kind of some of the leading factors that made you change denominations? Okay. Well, this, this could be a super long story, <laughs> but, uh, I'll keep it brief. I'll just kind of go over the brief narrative and then we can kind of push into the theology a little bit more as you guys want to, but, um, yeah, basically, I was raised in the PCA, which is uh, the Presbyterian Church in America, and I had such a good experience in that denomination that I always feel a little hesitant kind of talking about leaving the PCA because uh, that was like my home. You know, I, mm -hmm. I made such deep friends, and that's really where I sort of became a Christian and, and grew as a Christian. So mm -hmm. I always feel so grateful for that um, that background. But it was just a doctrinal thing. So I started thinking about baptism. Uh, I think, I mean, I guess I maybe thought about it a little bit before this, but started thinking about it more seriously when I was a senior in college, because I had decided to go to seminary. I felt called toward ministry. And I knew, you know, I'd always kind of been undecided about it. I'd always kind of thought, you know, I'm not sure what I think about that. Mm. Um, but I knew, well, this is going to affect whether where I could be ordained, sure. whether I could be still in the PCA as a pastor or not. And I was kind of already uncertain about infant baptism. I didn't quite feel uh, uh, confident in it. So I was kind of leaning the other way already, but I knew I needed to just work through it. So I, I took that last semester of college to start reading and thinking about it. And then the whole first year of seminary to study it, read books, talk with professors, talk with other students. I was at a, a P 
PCA Seminary, uh, Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. Again, another one of those places I just loved um, and had such a good experience there. My wife was also a student there at this time. She was in the getting a counseling degree. So we no, that was the first two years of our marriage there. So we always think back on that as a really happy season uh, there at Covenant. But um, yeah, so I took that first year and I just, I can remember vividly going back and forth. You know, I remember, mm. you know, that anyone who's listening to this, who's been through one of those seasons where you're discerning the truth and seeking the truth and working through a study of something. And of course it's, you know, you're studying it, but you're also praying about it. It's not just a theological thing. And that's, that could be uh, kind of an anxious process. And I remember back and forth at different times, but I just kind of solidified more towards the Credo Baptist side uh, gradually over time. And then by April of that year, uh, I was pretty settled in that. And so I was baptized. I, I don't like to say it rebaptized because I don't think anyone should ever be rebaptized. Uh, it's just kind of the question of what is baptism really is kind of more the question. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit. Um, so that's the journey. I can share more about what convinced me if that'd be helpful, but I just want to say one other thing real quick at the front end. And that is just, I'm always kind of sensitive and talking about issues like this, that it's kind of um, for people listening to this who don't believe in credo baptism, mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of aggravating <laughs> probably to, mm -hmm. you know, hear someone on the other side. And so the way, way I always try to frame these conversations is by saying, on the one hand, uh, baptism is really important. You know, I, I, I made a very inconvenient move in my life from one denomination to another because of it. It's important to follow the truth and it matters. You know, Jesus commanded us to be baptized. Uh, it's a powerful um, symbol. And I, I'm not saying it's just a symbol, but it's at least that. It's a powerful symbol of the gospel. I, I call it a sign and seal. Um, it's something God works through powerfully. Um, so it is that. On the other hand, it's also not, in my opinion, the kind of thing where we can't have unity in Christ despite our differences. Um, and so you know, I look back on my Presbyterian brothers and sisters as my precious brothers and sisters in Christ. I admire them. I look up to them. And I really, really, really don't approach this topic in a spirit of triumphalism. Like, you know, obviously this is the right view and, and everybody is wrong out there. I, I'm trying to do my best to follow Jesus. I'm trying to do my best to follow my conscience, to do what I think God wants me to do. Mm -hmm. I recognize though, on an issue like this, it's tricky uh, intelligent and godly people are on both sides of, of different differences in relation to it, you know, pedo-baptism versus credo-baptism, baptismal regeneration, questions of the mode, you know, there's lots of points that are disputed. I, I believe that godly Christians can be on different sides of that, and I'm trying to approach it in this spirit of saying, I've got to do my best, I've got to follow my conscience, I've got to seek the truth, I've got to try to follow through on the truth, but I can do that while recognizing um, I want to listen to the other side. I'm open to changing my mind. Uh, the other side, it, they are my brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll be in heaven together. So I'm trying to approach it in that way. I, I mm -hmm. hope, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to blast the other side out of the water. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> no I, I pun intended. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, there's all kinds of great baptism jokes we can yeah. make. <laughs> We're not dunking on anyone. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> 
Well, I appreciate you saying that because obviously that's the spirit of our entire podcast because like, I don't believe in credo baptism as a Catholic and I'm just really excited to have you on to hear, like, I really respect you. Like you're a very intelligent reasons for, um, becoming Baptist and for, um, rejecting pedo baptism. Um, so yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. And I definitely am just excited to hear what you have to say, because I think, yeah, a lot of it I'm going to disagree with, but I like really respect yeah your voice on this. And I also know you're coming from such a place of respect. So mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it would be good to go kind of go back and define what you see baptism as like, if you could define baptism, because I'm sure there's everyone is throughout the Christian tradition has different understandings of what baptism is. Okay, sure. Yeah. I mean, a short definition would just be the application of water in the name of the Trinity. Okay. So that, that, that might kind of open the front door to getting us into what we're talking about. And then in terms of kind of how we'd flesh that out and here's where a lot of the differences start to come in is um, okay. Who do you baptize? You know, I don't really know anybody who believes in a, a total, just indiscriminate baptism where you just baptize everybody. <laughs> so, uh, we, we, although there have been, you know, historical episodes where like an entire group of people gets baptized, uh, and, and there are those kind of strange times, but, but everybody's got the question, okay, who are the ones to baptize? Um, and then we've got the question of what exactly does it mean and what exactly does it do? Okay, and so that's where a lot of the disputes start to come in. So, um, yeah, I don't know. You guys can direct me on however you want me to, however you want to start uh, getting into those things. And I'm happy to hear any thoughts you guys have as well along the way here. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, so this is funny because growing up, I had like some really close friends who I'm still super close with, um, and they were very seriously Presbyterian, and um, I was just evangelical. And we would talk even as kids about it because I was like very confused because I got baptized around like eight years old when I um, made a profession of faith. And they were like, thought that was the weirdest thing ever because they were baptized as an infant. And so it was just kind of natural that we talked about it. And to this day, we still talk about it. It was funny. I just got a coffee with that friend and we talked about it. Um, so I definitely think it's something like you were saying earlier that brothers and sisters in Christ can kind of converse on. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, it also is a major doctrine. You know, it does affect ecclesiologically how we do church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the doctrines of baptizing infants, what particularly maybe would be your main difficulties with um, upholding those? Okay. Um, okay, I'll go for the main uh, main thing here. And this is something, if anyone's curious to uh, look up my uh, fuller case for this, I've written ar an article and it's actually online so people could find it at the journal Themelios. And if oh. they could even just Google um, Gavin Ortland, why not grandchildren? Question mark. That's the title of the article. And uh, they could see the fuller case there. But essentially um, what it came down from, to for me is the question, which infants? Uh, if we're going to baptize infants, which ones? Uh, again, no one thinks we should baptize all the infants in the world. And uh, the answer in my context, uh, and all of this, again, is just, I, I know Jackie and maybe some listening will see this differently from me, but um, this is just sort of explaining how I mm -hmm. got to this conclusion. So in my Presbyterian context, the answer to the which infants question was, 
um, the children, those who believe, and then the children of one or more believing parent. So essentially it comes down to your family. You know, do you have a mom or a dad who's a Christian? And that's what gets you in. And the problem I had is uh, I don't see that as the ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church that I see in scripture. I don't, the, you know, the big argument that you get from the Presbyterian and reformed traditions, and to some extent from other traditions as well, is continuity with circumcision. So the, the claim mm-hmm. is that, you know, we've always had the, the, the sacrament of initiation for children, for infants. Um, but the problem I have is it wasn't families that were circumcising their kids. It was all the descendants of uh, Abraham in the nation of Israel intergenerationally. So in Genesis 17, when circumcision is instituted, uh, God says to Abraham, it's for you and your seed after you for the generations to come. And the Hebrew word seed there uh, can be translated descendants, offspring. It's talking about, it's not just talking about moms, dads, and kids. Mm-hmm. It's it's the nation intergenerationally. So I have a problem with that because then I'm saying, well, that's not, if, if it's an argument from continuity, it's not continuous. Sure. Uh, it's, it's a change. Uh, how did we get to moms and dads and kids? And I think essentially that's where I get stuck. I just say, I, I, I would need a reason for that specific ecclesiology. Um, I'm very, very happy to say more than some other Baptists about the children of Christians. I'm happy to say that God can regenerate them from the womb. I see that with John the Baptist, you know, he's filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. Um, David in Psalm 22 talks about loving God from infancy. I'm happy to say God can regenerate an infant. I'm happy to say that the children of, of Christians, of Christian parents, I mean, this is near and dear to my heart. You know, I got four precious young kids. Um, I'm happy to say that they are in a, in a position of enormous blessing by being born into unto Christian parents. But I just don't see a reason to say that they're members of God's church from birth. And I just, as I look at the New Testament and what the new covenant community is, you know, Jeremiah 31, they shall all know me. Uh, you know, no longer will it be the case that one is teaching another about how to know the Lord. They'll all know me. They'll all have the Holy Spirit. I just feel that what the church is, is a believing community. The way you become a member of Christ's church is by uh, believing and, and having faith normally. Uh, there could be an exceptional circumstance. Uh, that's the, the only uh, thing we know to do to enter the church. So that's essentially it. Uh, uh, there's other things as well, you know, that of course I, I do see that in, in Acts. I see that this general pattern seems to recur over and over again, believing and then being baptized. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that that in and of itself is where I put the greatest weight because of course it's more of a missionary context. So you don't have as many, you know, families um, where it's like, you know, you the mom and dad become a Christian and then, you know, 30 years goes by and then um, they're, we're dealing with the second generation. So I don't put as much weight on that. The only other, I'll say two other things. One is the very idea of a baptism. Uh, this isn't my main thing, but it still is on my heart with it. The temporary application of water, mm-hmm. typically done in immersion in the water or submersion under the water, according to the imagery of Romans 6, buried with Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems like a weird thing to do to an infant. And 
it's a bummer because then the infant has no memory of it, no conscious memory of it. And I really, being baptized was one of the most joyful moments in my life. The whole blessing of sacraments is they're physical. You can feel them. You can taste them. God gave us these precious gifts that are physical uh, communicators of the gospel to us. And it was incredible to, to have that experience. And I would like my kids to not just have to tell them, oh, by the way, you were baptized, but for them to experience that. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's another consideration. And that's different from circumcision, which is a permanent mark on the body, uh, baptism being temporary. Now, the last, if I could just say one more thing, again, trying to be sensitive, I do have moods where I feel angst about this. <laughs> <laughs> so to be totally truthful, I do have times where I can see the appeal of the other side. I do have moods where I'm like, man, maybe 10 years from now, I'm going to become an Anglican or something like that, because I can <laughs> see, like, it's complicated. I, I it's not simple. Um, and so I, again, that's the spirit in which I approach it. But again, in the spirit of seeking to be faithful to Christ as best as I can, that's my best effort at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for our listeners who like didn't go to Bible school or seminary, and that maybe they're like, why do we even get baptized? You know, as for someone who comes from a Catholic or Orthodox tradition, there's obviously the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, for someone who's Presbyterian, that's not necessarily the case. So like you were saying earlier, a lot of times it's more the connection with like entrance into a covenant community and the continuation of circumcision in the new covenant. What would you say your view of baptism is now as in like why, if someone came to you and said, why should I get baptized or what happens at baptism? How would you answer that? Okay. I would, my first um, appeal for the why question is um, a matter of obedience. I, I think that the, the main motive in our hearts should be not to get something from it, though that's good too. But the mm -hmm. first thing should be, we want to obey Christ and he um, commanded us to be baptized. And so that's the first kind of space where I want to articulate the motive there. And then building from that, um, in terms of, you know, what does this result in and what does it do and how does it relate to regeneration and that kind of thing? My view is essentially what I see kind of in the reformed tradition generally, and that is it's uh, kind of between if we were to kind of think of a spectrum and on the one side, you'd have baptismal regeneration, which is a view of many, many churches, uh, including the Catholic church, but many others as well. And then on the other side, you'd have kind of what might be seen as like a the main view among like popular level evangelicals in America today, and, and probably more like the idea that it's just a symbol. And even to the point of, it's just a symbol of my faith. It's not really even a symbol of the gospel. Right. I mean, it's like, oh, it's like a fancy way of me sharing my testimony. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, or, and it's, and I'm showing that I'm a Christian and that's why I should be baptized. And that's, mm -hmm. I hear that a lot when I'm doing baptism interviews. <laughs> yep. And, uh, <laughs> It's just, you know, so you have to pastor people through that and help them think through that. So between those two extremes on the spectrum, I'd say there's other options and there's a whole gradation or range of options. And my perspective is that essentially, first of all, it is a, it is a symbol that, it, you know, it's not less than a symbol. It is picturing something visibly. And I would say there's two elements to that. One is the water, which is uh, symbol uh, symbolizes the washing away of our sins. And then the other is the immersion into the water, which symbolizes union with Christ in his 
death, burial, and resurrection. We go down into the water, we come back up because we're united to Christ who went down into the grave and back up. Now it's not just a symbol though. And, and the, so, not, so first thing to say is it's a symbol of the gospel. It's not a symbol of me, you know, it's right. a symbol of the gospel. And then the second thing to say is it's not just a symbol. I, I call it a sacrament, not just an ordinance. Mm-hmm. The early Baptists spoke like that. It's a means of grace. God is at work through the sacrament. God is, so I, I like the language of the Westminster Confession, which calls baptism and, and uh, the Eucharist or Lord's Supper as well, um, a sign and seal. Mm-hmm. So that just simply means it's symbolizing something and it's also pledging something or God is promising something. So through baptism, God is communicating to us and he is uh, uh, blessing us and giving grace to us. He's strengthening, nourishing our faith that the Lord's Supper each week we partake of the Lord's Supper, we experience and receive the grace of God and the gospel afresh, in a fresh mm-hmm. way. And they, that's why these sacraments are such precious gifts from God. And so it's so important to take them seriously and see them as sacred as they are. The Reformed tradition spoke of the sacraments as kind of like the visible words of the gospel. So there's the spoken word, the word of God preached, and then there's the visible word, the word shown. And both baptism and the Lord's Supper are visible pictures of the gospel. And again, not just pictures, but they're, but through them, God is communicating the gospel. So even if somebody, even if a baptism, this is my view, even if a baptism is being practiced incorrectly in some way or another, even if the person isn't actually a Christian, even if they're getting false, falsely baptized, you know, or something like that, um, God is, people standing there watching the baptism can still be blessed by seeing a picture of the gospel. Uh, and that's the objectivity of the sign. It's not what what makes it meaningful is is God's promise. So I'm trying to push against the mere symbolism view and 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 kind of retrieve a more like historic reformed understanding of it. Mm. Um, and I think that's where my convictions lie. Again, I um, I hold that in a spirit of fear and trembling before God. <laughs> As we should uh, be, with most things. <laughs> yes, yes, but but even uh, fear in the sense of kind of like I, I, I'm, I I see the complexity of it because I mm. I do understand that baptismal regeneration becomes pretty much the predominant view, uh, prior to the Reformation early on, and that's I just made a video about that, and I I don't I'm not convinced it's universal as some are, but I acknowledge it becomes pretty common. So, you know that that is a, a fair challenge to my view. Yeah, and that leads into our. Next question. Um, so how do you reconcile historical church practice of baptizing infants? Since I know that you are really deep in church history as a Protestant, that's one of, that's the video I saw of you with Austin was how to be Protestant and still in church history. Um, yeah. So how would you reconcile that historical church practice um, and now not particularly believe in infant baptism? Okay. Well, I would say two things. And uh, again, these come from the standpoint of this is complicated no matter where you fall. And so, uh, you know, nobody has this kind of neat and tidy view, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And actually, that was something that really struck me as I took my most recent uh, revisiting of this, and especially with a view to the challenge of baptismal regeneration. Um, Because in my, over the last year, it's been my privilege and honor to talk with Catholics and Orthodox Christians and be challenged by many of their points. 
I hadn't done that a lot, you know, prior to about 14 months ago. Mm -hmm. And so it's been um, a good experience for me of, of being challenged in various ways. It, it, it has deepened me as a pro it has changed me as a Protestant in some particulars, but it has also deepened me. So I'm, I'm more committed to Protestantism, but it's also made me love and appreciate and respect Catholic and Orthodox people uh, in, deeply. But one of the challenges is of course this, and then uh, baptism, baptismal regeneration, and, and not even just from Catholic and Orthodox Christians, but frankly, from, you know, m most of Christendom, you know, the Anglicans and, and the Lutherans, and, and even some other Protestant denominations. So, um, but, I, but to say two things, one is I do, I am convinced that infant baptism is not universal throughout church history. And, you know, this is one of the areas where there's definitely disagreements among different Christians, but I'm convinced that it is a later development that comes into the into the picture. Um, I gave five reasons for that in my video on this. It has to do with, um, you know, tomb inscriptions. We have so many tomb inscriptions of, of uh, sickbed baptism, uh, death deathbed baptism, people being baptized in their deathbed, and then the number of them, the quantity of them in the uh, third century, for example, it, to me, it looks like it, people weren't generally getting baptized at birth. It looks like they were, uh, that, like that's starting to be practiced, but it looks like people, because otherwise, why would you be baptizing so many people right before they're about to die? Um, and then, we, you know, we just have a lot of evidence of people getting baptized later on, delaying baptism. So, you know, a lot of some of the Cappadocian fathers uh, were baptized at age 30, you know, and even though their father was a bishop, you know, things like this. Um, and then there's other appeals that I make, other testimonies. I think Tertullian was an, a Christian who wrote the first treatise on baptism in church history that is surviving. And around the year 200, he argued for waiting until someone is a, is a, can know Christ before you baptize them. And I, I understand that Tertullian is not arguing like a modern day Baptist because he thinks the reason to wait is different. Nonetheless, I don't think he would have argued that if infant baptism was apostolic and if it was from the beginning. I just, he has too much respect for tradition. I can't imagine that. So anyways, there's lots of reasons for that, for why I think the evidence of the early church is very kind of messy and kind of complicated. You have lots, obviously you have lots of church fathers who believe in infant baptism, but you also have others who early on, it looks like it's not present yet or, um, and it's not the universal practice. So then you'd say, okay, well, but it becomes universal, you know, certainly by the fourth and fifth century, it's universal uh, up until the Reformation. And the only exception I know of for that would be separatist groups like the Waldensians who practiced credo baptism, but then pretty, it's pretty, comes uh, pretty universal, infant baptism does. Now, my response to that is, I don't think that, that it is impossible to consider a practice uh, to be erroneous, wrong, and yet become mainstream. And part of what makes me open to that is um, two things. One is in the Old Testament, uh, there's huge, huge, you know, centuries go by where there's idolatrous worship practices, where there's uh, various errors of, uh, of, of uh, worship. 
And even the reform efforts under the good kings like Josiah and Hezekiah don't necessarily remove all the high places. So when people say to me, look at the promise God made in Matthew 16, you know, the, the God is never going to abandon the church. The Holy Spirit is protecting and preserving the church. Therefore, we can, you know, you shouldn't um, believe that there's a, an error that comes in that becomes mainstream. I'd say, well, I don't, I'm not convinced of that. I think throughout the Old Testament, God was faithful to his people. God was faithful to his promises. God was always at work. And yet, that doesn't mean that people can't sin. It doesn't mean that people can't fall into errors. And part of what, so that's one, the other thing that makes me open to this is um, there's also a theology of baptism that becomes pretty mainstream that holds that unbaptized babies are damned to hell. Uh, that is, of course, Augustine's view, and it is in early councils. You know, the, the Pope Zosimus in the fourth century articulated that. It's, it becomes, in my opinion, pretty much universal also. Um, it's it, not early on, but from Augustine afterwards, especially in the West. You see that in, in pretty much all the major medieval Western theologians. And it's only in recent times that um, the Catholic Church and, and other churches as well are more open on that and open to unbaptized babies being saved. And so I'd say, look, we've all got this challenge. We've all, unless you, unless someone agrees with Augustine's view uh, and the predominant view in the West that unbaptized babies are damned, we've all got to recognize that a part of our heritage is uh, things that we will probably, we, we will disagree with. Um, and so that I think is a kind of complicating factor and it creates some breathing room. Um, so uh, yeah, that, that's been, now I've had people say to me, come on now, don't act like you're smarter than the whole tradition. Uh, <laughs> just be humble, you know, be humble. Uh, don't think you're smarter than all these other Christians. If so many people believed in infant baptism, don't just, just assume that you must be wrong in your convictions. And I think that's a reasonable appeal, but the problem that I have for it with it is um, it kind of cuts both ways because I also want to be humble to the credo Baptist groups that I respect. I, I see them as also a part of the body of Christ. And in the 20th century, there's been this massive explosion of Pentecostalism, which is practices credo baptism. And such that it's not the case that it's like almost all Christians are on one side of this. Yeah. I, I look at the church, I see godly, faithful Christians on both sides. And so I don't, I think the appeal to humility uh, is kind of complicated by the fact that, well, that's, that humility should be directed to all Christians, you know, and that, that's one reason why I'm not persuaded by that appeal. So that's a brief overview. I don't know if that's helpful at all. And I'm probably talking too much. Sorry. No, 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 no you're not definitely not. I, I think that's really helpful in just understanding, mm -hmm. you know, that, um, you know, I think it's it's sometimes we can kind of have a um, like an idealized vision on how doctrines came to place. <laughs> For sure. But yeah. a lot of the doctrines that we just take as this is, you know, for sure what we believe, don't even think about it. At one point, people wrestled with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's why we had councils. That's why we had, you know, even just the development of the canon. So I think it's important just for everyone to recognize the development of doctrine and 
understand that, you know, you can humbly even reject certain doctrines that were traditionally upheld and recognize there could be error. Um, so yeah, no, I think that's really helpful just to lay out, um, especially since a lot of times I think there is a stereotype that Protestants don't know church history or that soul scriptura means we don't like listen to tradition at all. And that's not the case. Tradition is just a little complicated. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, no, thanks for saying that. And um, yeah, that uh, I have experienced, I think one of the reasons your guys podcast is so great is you're talking about these differences, which reduces the caricatures. Cause one of the things that has been kind of dismaying over the last year or so as I've been engaging in these conversations is realizing how much uh, different Christians of different traditions sometimes just never really talk to each other. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so they really do have a caricature, uh, a, a very simplified view of the other side. And I've thought so much about Atticus Finch's uh, advice in the novel To Kill a Mockingbird, where he says, you never really understand someone until you see the world through their eyes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that whole book is about kind of uh, losing our prejudices and learning to truly see other people, I think. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And I try to practice that. I'm sure I don't do it perfectly. But I but I've just been dismayed at how much there is the caricaturing on both sides, you know, both sides can do that a lot. And so something like, you know, having a more nuanced view of sola scriptura, mm -hmm. or for the Protestants to have a, a, a more nuanced view of, of Catholic doctrines that they caricature. Mm -hmm. uh, I appreciate that, because that way, we can better understand one another and actually sometimes make more progress in the dialogue. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's something Jackie and I joke about all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be like, well, you worship Mary. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Megan and I've definitely I've come being friends with Megan come to understand Protestant views and have a lot more respect because as I mentioned before, I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville and I was just surrounded by all Catholics. I was raised with all Catholics and I used to think I think I've said this before on the podcast. I used to think that sola scriptura was like the dumbest thing. I just really, that's what I thought. Like, no, I you even just, said that to me at one point. She I was did. like, we should do an episode on sola scriptura because I hate it. And I, I was did. like, okay, sure. <laughs> um, and I still don't agree with it, but I also am, I'm like, well, okay, obviously, Jackie, first of all, be humble, like very intelligent Christians. This is not something they've just solved. If it was really that easy, <laughs> people at all would all agree on this. Um, and... Yeah, now I have come to understand um, Sola Scriptura and what people actually believe. And even though I don't agree with it, I now understand how very intelligent Christians, Christians more intelligent than I am, um, hold this view. So I've definitely um, got rid of a lot of the caricatures that I've had about Protestants. And Megan, I think, has said the same. Oh, but yeah. Just I, having conversations. I remember at it. Moody, my husband we met at Moody, um, but he was taking a class on the Reformation. So it was like an intensive on the Reformation. And so, of course, these conversations of Protestants and Catholics come up a lot. And one of the authors of a book he had to read said that the only way that the gap can be bridged is if we read each other's literature in the presence of the other person. Mm. And that's like always stuck with me because I was like, yeah, I could just like Google Catholic catechism, <laughs> read it and be like, oh, so that's what they believe. Whereas if I read it with Jackie and I say, can you explain this to me? And I'll ask you questions and I'm trying to understand, I'm going to have so much 
more understanding and there's a relationship there instead of me sitting alone in my room coming up with what I think Jackie is like. (laughs) So that's why it's important to talk about these things, especially baptism, because baptism does get very spicy sometimes with people's opinions. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love what you guys are saying. I mean, I've felt that so much from what growing up for me, my perception of Catholics was a total caricature. I think it was just, Mm -hmm. it was almost kind of like, um, there's just no point in even learning about Catholic theology, because it's just kind of this dead tradition or something. I mean, it was really like, I don't think anyone ever said that to me, but that's kind of how it's not quite that bad, but it was like that. And then Mm. I would say it's been such a privilege over the last year or so. And before that as well, a little bit, um, making friends with Catholics and, uh, you know, one of the blessings is even if you don't agree with someone, understanding a different way of looking at something can help you learn Mm -hmm. uh, and it can expose your own blind spots and own. So that's actually, I think a wonderful way to engage the conversation is in addition to defending the truth as best we can and seeking the truth, also to say, what can I learn from this other person? And uh, because there's a lot of things that Roman Catholic Christians, I think, do better at than Protestants, generally speaking. Um, you know, I, I studied Anselm for my doctorate, and there's not really any Protestant scholars on Anselm. All the scholarship is from Catholics or uh, secular historians. So it's just interesting. So, yeah, but I, I like that thought of, you know, entering into it in the spirit of openness to learn. Yeah. Well, and like you were saying too, you know, even engaging with Catholics has made you even understand yourself better and why you're Protestant and your own views and perspectives. And I think that's a huge part of it as well. You know, when Jackie and I engage on topics like doctrines on Mary or Sola Scriptura, we have to also understand what we believe (laughs) Mm -hmm. and forces Mm -hmm. us to engage with, okay, well, why do I believe what I believe? Do I just believe it because I've been told or do I actually understand why this view is the way it is? And, and that's important for anyone, I think. Mm -hmm. I have to say, yeah, I have to say, Dr. Ortland, your video on, well, you had a couple of videos on the papacy that made me totally look at the doctrine of the papacy all over again. And I was like, wait a second. I just, (laughs) I was like, I have to understand why I believe this or I can't be Catholic anymore, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so I really had to study it. And I still am Catholic. I still agree with the papacy, but I also came to see that it's not as easy as a lot of like, and simple as a lot of Catholics presented it to me as. And I totally understand now why people would not agree with the papacy and are not like, oh, I'm just going to become Catholic if I read church history, which is what I thought before. I was like, well, they just need to read church history. And I hadn't even read all the church history. So I was just (laughs) saying that. Um, But it, yeah, it really challenged me. And I really just, yeah, love those videos. And that's why I just watch every video you put up because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to better understand my view and why I believe this because I, as you said, like I am concerned with the truth and I want to know the truth. And that's why we shouldn't be afraid to engage in these conversations because if they're respectful like we're all just after the truth and that's what concerns us yeah thanks for saying that i just think that is such a wonderful mentality to have that you know a good model for us all is when because i think what the temptation can be is to when i hear a, a different perspective especially when it's more complicated and nuanced than i expected it to be it's easy to feel threatened and it's yeah, easy to feel yeah. like you just want to punch right. back immediately and yeah. say and argue right away. 
And that, unfortunately, that happens so much. And Protestants do it a lot. I, I totally agree with what Megan, you just said about how many Protestants don't really know why they're Protestant and they haven't really thought about it. And I think that's one reason why when they hear a, a Catholic, they meet a Catholic Christian who's got a great argument and they're immediately kind of swept away because they've never actually thought through. And all of that is just another reason, I think, to try to fight against the caricatures. Yeah. And the goal is not to be wishy-washy in your convictions, but it's just to have accuracy in your understanding of the other side. Yeah, people are always more complex than a caricature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, going back to baptism, as I was listening to you, I I guess I, and I know some of our listeners, would like to hear you, um, I guess, go more in depth explaining the difference between the grace that you believe we receive at baptism and then the grace that someone that believes in infant baptism or um baptismal restoration would believe in the differences because i know there's definitely you don't believe it's just a symbol you do believe receive grace but it's not the same kind of grace that i would believe as a catholic you receive when you're baptized as an infant and brought into the catholic church okay um yeah so a way we could get at when we when we talk about the sacraments as um uh as well as sacraments as um tool as, as, as tools that God uses to strengthen and nourish our faith. Uh, one way we could maybe make a distinction is between kind of the initial grace uh, that actually results in someone going from um, dead in their sins to alive to Christ. So in my understanding, regeneration refers to that act where the Holy Spirit makes us born again, makes us uh, alive to God. We, we pass from the darkness to the light, so to speak. Um, and there's that initial moment where, where God does that. I, sometimes we might not know exactly when that moment occurred, but there's a transition, you know, from one state to another. And then after you become a Christian, though, you still need grace. You know, you, you don't just, in fact, every moment of your life, you need God's grace. And there's many things God has given us that um, by which he communicates that grace to us. One would be other Christians, you know, another would be prayer. Um uh, another would be listening to God's word preached. You know, God nourishes and strengthens us in our faith through these means. And one of those is the sacraments. And so I think that, uh, I don't think baptism, in my understanding, baptism does not make you a Christian and, and baptism does not um, confer automatically regeneration. I, I do think baptism must be received with faith uh, as and also with the Lord's Supper. Um, but it is an enormous blessing. As we've said, it's a very, uh, it's a, it's a picture of the gospel and through it, God is both, um, uh, promising and symbolizing the gospel and, and nourishing us in our, in our faith. So, uh, that's my general understanding. I think the problems I have with baptismal regeneration, I mean, I think one of them is just, I don't understand how it works. And this is where I'm going to be doing lots of study before my dialogue with Jordan Cooper to make sure I'm fully getting it again in the Atticus Finch way, uh, mm. seeing it through someone else's eyes. I don't know how it works. Like if we say that faith is the uh, a necessary or, or the, the general way we, we become a Christian uh, is through faith. Romans 10, for example, we are saved by faith, by believing in Christ. So if someone is uh, dramatically converted on uh, New Year's Eve, or let's say New Year's Day, they're dramatically converted, 
and they, you know, they cry out to God and their life is powerfully changed. They go from the darkness to the light. They're, they're, they go from hopelessness to filled with hope. They go from addicted to certain things. Now they're free. And this happens. God does this. Okay. Now they, they're looking for a church. They finally find a church. They start talking to the pastor. They explain their story and uh, they get uh, to the point of, Hey, I, you know, pastor says, you got to get baptized. Uh, this is someone who's never had any contact with the church before. So they're baptized. Let's say they're baptized on uh, August 1st of that same year. You know, it takes them a while to find the church, takes them a while to do it. So between January 1st and August 1st, what's the status of their life? And it just seems to me that if uh, I just have lots of questions about how to understand that, you know, I don't think you can be regenerated twice. I know that different traditions have different views on whether you can sort of fall away from your salvation and lose your salvation. So that could be a complicating factor, but it just looks to me like baptism is a part of the process um, and kind of climactic visible moment of it, but not actually what does it. And that someone that the person is regenerate um, from the time of faith on, on January. So January through July, they're, they're regenerate. Um, I, I don't, common experience tells me indicates that to me. And then what I see in the scripture indicates that to me. So that's kind of where I've landed on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and there's a concern that I have about presumption. I, I know that this would not be the um, intention or the, the practice in a good way, but I think an abuse that I see happening that I worry about, and probably someone who believes in baptismal regeneration could understand this and agree with this. Cause I'm not saying this is a necessary part of the theology. And it can even, honestly, it even happens in my context in, and among Baptists where someone thinks that because I'm baptized, I'm good, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like that, that's, don't, don't worry about it. You, you're baptized, so you're good. Um, mm-hmm. And I have grave worries about that. And I worry about various understandings of baptism that can contribute to that. So I don't know that, that hopefully that explains a little bit and feel free to offer your thoughts or, or, or challenge any of that if you'd like to. Yeah, I think as a Catholic, that also gets into the different doctrines of justification and I was sanctification. Just say that. Yeah, oh versus what Protestants and Catholics believe, because we don't think you're automatically saved, like you're going to heaven when you're baptized. We think you're given all the graces that you need, and that throughout life, if you're they're like these virtues you receive at baptism, that grace that you need to ultimately be saved, but you have to water those with the continuing sacraments throughout the church and um, works rooted in faith, not not faith based no but i'm not saying you're saved by works <laughs> you will know that i'm not saying that but um <laughs> that those are virtues you receive that need to be watered and grown and you need to continue to be sanctified and justified throughout your life we don't think and i think you you know this just explaining for anyone listening <laughs> that mm-hmm. we don't think that you're automatically justified at that you don't you don't see justification as a one-time no. event mm-hmm. whereas right. we we yeah. do and so we would say at the moment that you know that man in your example you know accepted christ and was filled with the holy spirit that he was justified and that was a one-time event whereas the catholics don't view it that way which is so funny because as you were talking i was thinking about that and i feel like a lot of our conversations regarding doctrinal differences come down to to justification (laughs) yeah and th- th- help me, uh, what about regeneration? Do you, and this is purely questions of ignorance here, but do you, th- the, for a Catholic, is 
Um, I mean, is that man regenerate in like February and March of that year? Could he be regenerated multiple times? I'm just, I just sincerely am curious about how that's understood and forgive me if I'm putting you on the spot. No, so how I would understand that. So yeah, if they're baptized as a baby, they're wiped clean of their original sin. They still have concupiscence, though propensity to sin, obviously. I think we all believe that even though you've been baptized, you still sin. But so we think that they're freed from original sin and they're brought into the church, but they still, they're still going through the process of justification. So they are regenerated from that state of being in original sin, but it doesn't automatically mean that they are saved. So I don't think they're regenerated out of that state of original sin. They've already come out of that when they were baptized as, as an infant, but they still are going through that process of justification and sanctification. So they can, someone that's been baptized as a baby can still not go to heaven. Right. And I totally get that. But what about the person who believes, but is not yet baptized? Okay. Can that person be regenerate? I, so I, we would say that they would still be able to go to heaven out of God's mercy that they would, because they all had the intention of being baptized, if that was their intention or it all comes down to God's mercy, I guess, is what we would say. That like they you're saying, still like can if go the man died before he, before he was, was baptized. baptized. Or right. That okay. <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. I be, and then the specific category of regeneration, because yeah. that I, is, I, I just know, I mean, I knew a guy, and this is really bad, so I, I'm embarrassed okay. to say on this guy's back, but he waited 30 years to be mm-hmm. baptized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would not recommend that to anybody, but he did it. But um, there were complicating factors there, but, but during that time, he seemed regenerate. He seemed alive to God. He seemed, you know what I'm saying? So that's where it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I don't want to keep pressing this. I just, I'm, I'm genuinely curious about how that category of regeneration is understood. Cause it just, I think part of what's on my heart with this is it just seems like people get regenerated apart from baptism sometimes. So was he in a tradition like that he was not and it was a protestant tradition he was a part of when he and he joined after he became yes yeah it was correct is what you said that's right Mm -hmm. so i again like i said i don't want to keep no yeah (laughs) i'm throwing a total curveball in here and i'm apologize for doing that i think too like it's also when it comes down to it we have different understandings of even like the order of salvation (laughs) yeah right and so it's it's hard too because gavin like you and i thinking about regeneration is going to be different than your category. Right. Yeah. Which I think too, maybe is where a lot of the difficulty of just speaking past each other because yeah, I guess we don't have a category that would be a good comparison to the Catholic or Orthodox view of regeneration because we don't really have a sacrament that we believe removes us from the state of original sin right right yeah that makes sense and again i'm sorry i totally derailed us here no you didn't at all that's a great question i wish i had i wish i was more intelligent on the spot because i feel like there's most definitely an answer but then i always go when people ask me this question i'm like well i mean god's mercy he wasn't a part of a catholic or a tradition where he understood the importance of like being baptized immediately or maybe he was i'm not sure (laughs) but like god can work outside of the sacraments if he knows um someone's heart even though we do believe people should be participating in the sacraments so 
I don't think I have a great answer to that question. Um, I'm sure someone, a Catholic theologian like Scott Hahn or someone would have a much better answer than me. <laughs> no problem. I don't have a great answer either. And that's why I'm just wondering about it and, and doing research yeah. about it. And I had another conversation with someone else too, where I was trying to ask the same question. And it's an area I need to keep thinking about and trying to better understand mm -hmm. the other side on that. So I'll keep I'll keep digging myself. I'll let you know what I what I discover and you can yeah, do please do. I will do the same thing because I that is a really good question and something I've never thought about like that specific situation. Um, and that does make me think about, okay, well, what do we think regeneration? When would he be? Yeah, regenerated. Mm -hmm. So thank you for saying that because I'm yeah, I'm now I'm going to dig into that too. <laughs> yeah. So kind of as a final, maybe like wrap up question or thought, you know, as we talk about your view of baptism, it involves faith. So it's a sign and seal of the gospel, um, you know, believers baptism being that someone is making a profession of faith in God um, and that you see that as a requirement of sorts. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. we had a question from someone um, who is one of our listeners and they were wondering what your thoughts would be on for those um, who maybe have a disability where they do not have the mental capacity to maybe claim belief in Jesus Christ in the same way that you or I would. What would, in that situation, how does baptism work and what does that look like? Okay, thank you for asking about this because it's such a relevant and pastoral question. And I have had to think about this pastorally. Um, particularly at our last church, um, where one of the most beautiful baptisms I've ever seen um, was a father baptizing his daughter who had a disability and wasn't able to articulate faith in a in the same way that someone else would. And um, so, it, and it was a it was just I can't even convey how powerful it was. But um, I think the general way I'm, I'm, I think I kind of navigate on a thing like this is um, we want to kind of probe those words, credible profession of faith. And what does that mean exactly? And I would say that that will look different for different people. You know, for, for one person, um, they're able to articulate their faith more clearly than another person. Even just, you know, an adult can articulate it maybe with a little more categories than a child could, for instance. Sure. And so we wouldn't want to have some kind of universal standard that we apply indiscriminately of a person's circumstances. And um, in this case, um, this man's daughter who had a disability wasn't able to articulate faith with words, but you know, it's interesting. You get to know people and mm. it's, it's really beautiful. Um, sometimes something that can seem uh a negative from one vantage point can be such a positive from another vantage point. And people who have disabilities can uh, bless us and teach us in ways that nobody else can. And, uh, and uh, so in, the, in this case, he, he was, I'll never forget talking with him and him sharing um, why he was confident in, in his daughter's um, right to be baptized. And uh, she was probably about 30 or so. So she was, well, I take that back. She was younger. She was maybe in her 20, early 20s or something like that. But uh, the, the idea here is I don't think we should require somebody has to say with words in order to articulate faith if that's not something they're capable of doing. And 
granted, it's tricky. There's a lot of wisdom required for knowing how do you navigate in this circumstance? How do you navigate in that? So I don't have a kind of silver bullet here that solves every case. But in general, I would say that um, we, uh, we should just treat people in light of their circumstances. And people are capable of communicating an openness to God in various different ways. And so um, that would be a little bit of pastorally kind of how I'd think through a question like that. And uh, the heart behind that is we want to be as generous as, as we can possibly be with people. And because our Lord himself is so generous with us. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And I think, um, you know, even, similarly it's not the exact same thing but even similarly when in coming in conversations of whether or not a child should be baptized versus an adult Mm. is somewhat tied to that as well because i remember to briefly share my baptism story so i was eight years old which was very young for my church my church pretty much only baptized adults and i but i grew up in a christian family which is always a little complicated because it's like when did you become a christian i don't know i was raised a Christian, but I remember when I was eight years old, I had this moment where I was laying in my bunk bed at night and I was praying and I felt God tell me to get baptized. And so I was just like with that childlike faith, okay. And so that morning I told my parents that I wanted to be baptized and they were like, okay, well, we need to talk to our pastor and elders because I don't know if they do that. And I was like, I'll do it. So I actually met with the pastor and elder board and told them why I wanted to be baptized. And they were like, so blown away that they were like, well, what, like, who are we to stop you? And so I sort of paved the way for children to be baptized in our congregation. Um, But I just like, I always fall back on that because I know some people are like, well, I don't know if I was really saved as a, as a child, or if I really understood and faith in Jesus Christ, I think it's more than just an intellectual understanding. Mm -hmm. And that's important when it comes to these more like complex cases and situations. Yeah, that is such a great story. I wish the yeah. eight-year-olds in my church would do that. <laughs> I was a very bold child. I was like, I'll do it. <laughs> it's awesome. I mean, well, my oldest is eight and we're starting to, to have conversations about this along with my oh. daughter who's six. And it's so exciting to think about yeah. that. But but I love what you're saying of the heart behind it of not being overly scrupulous, not being overly harsh and, and questioning or everything, but just, you know, um, erring on the side of, of generosity. Uh, that just seems to me to reflect the heart of Christ. I, I, so I really appreciate what you're saying. Or like you were saying too, you know, there's no test. Like, okay, well, what's Westminster Shorter Catechism? Here we go. Chief and a man. Do you know the answer? No, you can't be baptized. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Cause we just want to treat people as the Lord treats us. And that, I think that means treating us, um, you know, in light of even thinking I often, one of my, the verses I've thought of so many times is when Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, I have more to say to you, but you can't bear it right now. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, that's so interesting. He's, he's factoring in what they're capable of hearing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Our Lord does that with us. He, he treats us in light of our limitations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being willing to just talk with us. This has been so fun, and I'm I'm just really looking forward to this episode coming out and just hearing what people think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're just yeah, we just wanted to emphasize again how honored we are that you would take an hour out of your Saturday to mm-hmm. talk with us, and yeah, just because you know 
we're like your little fans. So yeah. <laughs> we do. Um, it's a it's a yeah. privilege. I, I I love what you guys are doing and just the way you model a respectful dialogue about these things and even being willing to you know for you Jackie to have me on and listen to me advocating for another view shows a lot of grace on your part. So thank you and uh, yeah, I'm I'm really grateful to be able to talk with you guys. Yeah, well, I I learned a lot. I have a lot to think about and. Um, yeah, it's always a pleasure to hear your views on these things because you speak so respectfully um, and they always challenge me, which is, I think, good for me. So helpful <laughs> <laughs> for all of us. Yes. So, yeah, so thank you so much for coming on and um, yeah, having this conversation. And yeah, I'm, like Megan said, really excited to hear what people think. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe we'll have to do a follow-up. <laughs> I was just going to say, let's do it. I'd be happy to sometime. Oh, Yay. For sure. I'm going to tell you what I, I'm going to talk to some people about that question you asked me. <laughs> sure. Yeah. We can talk about that or we can do a, a different topic too, whatever you guys want to do. Go. I would love to talk about the Eucharistic communion, Dr. Orland. I would love to talk about that with you too. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I'd be happy to do yeah. that. I've done one shorter video on that. I'm um, mm -hmm. responding to Francis Chan. But oh, yes, yeah. I watched that. Yeah, I, but I haven't done a lot, but mm -hmm. it's something I want to keep learning more about too. So I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. Well, thank you. We'll let you go so that you can enjoy your weekend. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on and I, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thank you. My privilege. Thanks so much, guys. Good to be with you. Yeah.